Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Allison Feeney, author of For the Love of Beer, Pennsylvania's Breweries. Allison Feeney, author of For the Love of Beer, Pennsylvania's Breweries. Was there some moment when you decided, I'm going to write a book about beer? <laughs> uh, no, it is something that has come about over the last couple of years of doing some research and uh, it was one of those things where I did a bunch of academic papers and then every time I would write it other people would say oh this is great stuff and so I thought the general public should know uh, all the great things about Pennsylvania's beer history. Now you have in the in the references in the back a couple of articles you wrote for academic journals it sounds like beer trail maps and the growth of exper experimental experiential tourism cultural heritage, sustainable development, and the impact of craft breweries. How do you manage to tie an academic subject into something fun like beer? Yeah, well, it is fun. That's true. Uh, one, the tourism mapping. My background is actually in uh, mapping. That's where I do most of my teaching. Uh, and tourism for agro-tourism, and people are really trying to enjoy going to breweries and wineries and festivals. And uh, if you look at all the tourism maps around, they sort of don't really do the justice for the brewing industry. So that's where that article comes from. In terms of our sustainable development, that really uh, came about by visiting these breweries. When you visit breweries in some of these small towns, it's amazing the hard work and dedication that some of these brewers have put into uh, really sort of redeveloping some of our small main streets and then also some of our revitalizing some of our large you know, neighborhoods and large urban areas. Do you feel like you're sort of getting away with something, uh, doing going to breweries? <laughs> and festivals and, and all this and, and counting it as academic <laughs> credentials? Uh, no, actually, it really is hard work. I've read a lot of academic papers uh, along the way, um, and so there's a lot of research that goes into this. It's very timely. Agritourism, again, is a big uh, input in a lot of not only geography but sociology, anthropology. Uh, so that is a big sort of trend with our local food-to-farm type of uh, table right now. Uh, and, yeah, I certainly enjoy myself along the way, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so if somebody buys this book, what do they get? Uh, really a celebration of Pennsylvania, our amazing history, our cultural heritage, uh, again, some of the uh, architectural treasures that we have in the state, and then a lot of our local lores and legends that individuals, uh, you know, brewers are trying to promote about their hometowns. Uh, so it really is a book that kind of synthesizes a lot of the stories that the brewers are trying to tell and kind of putting it into context so that people can appreciate all Pennsylvania has to offer. Well, you have a lot in here about the history of beer in general. Did you know much about that before you wrote the book? I do actually have a history degree too, and so it is something that I have always enjoyed the history of, and the project actually came about when uh, I was doing a student uh, research project uh, with a student of mine, who, and we were going through all the old wills and testaments of the earliest settlements here in Pennsylvania, 
And, you know, some of our earliest settlers had very little and certainly no monetary value. And But the things that they would show up in wills were often the brewing equipment. And that equipment was passed down to women. And so it was really one of the main artifacts that was sort of historically passed down to women uh, through, you know, as sort of personal possessions. And uh, so that I found really interesting, especially since today it's a very male-dominated field. Well, you write here what is often overlooked in history is the fact that until recently, women were the driving force behind much of the world's beer production. While men were out hunting and gathering, the women were in charge of brewing beer. Yes, yeah, certainly there's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that. And uh, certainly if you look at, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, he talks about the beer maiden. Uh, there's a lot of songs about beer gods, and most of them were, uh, your goddesses, you know, were women. Uh, if you look at, and around the world, really, I mean, you look at China, Egypt, uh, even in Chile, um, in South America, you have evidence that women were the ones that brewed the beer. It wasn't until it really becomes sort of an industrial type of product, and really sort of the monks kind of started that in, in Europe, uh, really sort of making it into a science and recording the uh, information and ingredients that would go into it. Uh, and they became very good at brewing beer, uh, but they you know, had a life of solitary, so, and not to collect wealth. Uh, so, but once they became very good at it, then uh, the industry started around it and started to make money, and that's sort of where women then kind of get pushed out. But even in early um, North American settlement, a lot of the tavern owners were, and keepers were women. Uh, in Shippensburg, we have one of the oldest taverns, probably west of the Susquehanna, and it was a widowed uh, woman who, you know, came over. Her husband died on a boat, and she had a tavern, and it becomes actually a first courthouse uh, west of the Susquehanna. And uh, so, yeah, women had quite a role in, in beer making and North American history. When you were doing your research for this book, did you come across women brewmasters today? There's a few. Uh, it's minimal. It's improving slightly. Uh, certainly we have Zero Day in Harrisburg. Uh, she is an incredible woman and is actually taken charge and part of the Brewers of Pennsylvania. Uh, Free Will has two women brewers uh, uh, in, in uh, Love City in Philadelphia has another. Uh, but it's, you know, when you can start naming individuals, you know it's, it's a small number out there. Uh, I'm quite excited. Harrisburg, um, hopefully in the next year, we'll have the first uh, African-American brewer. Um, They're starting the Harris Family Brewing Company. And so, again, I think the industry is starting to diversify a little. You also mentioned Carol Stout. Yeah, she is one of the first. Uh, she's actually called the Queen of Hops. She was one of the first women brewers uh, post-prohibition. Uh, and they had the Stouts Brewery, uh, and that is part of a larger complex, uh, you know, with a, a steakhouse. And now they have a uh, bread and craft shop, too, that goes along with it. And, yeah, she used her degree in uh, biochemistry and, uh, you know, was one of the first sort of in the state to, to really start brewing beer. You mentioned the um, epic of Gilgamesh and ancient beers in Peru. What is it that beer that we drink today has in common with those beers that you can still call it all beer? 
probably uh hopefully today our beers are tasting better uh, i think it's uh probably now we have uh patrick mcgovern um he actually works uh in trying to recreate some of those recipes uh and so if you really want to taste one you certainly can um the actual ingredients are really sort of uh is probably what makes it beer uh probably that malted barley is one of our first sort of harvested products that you know throughout history humans you know started cultivating and, and harvesting uh to make beer and again if it was by accident or purpose you know that part we may never know but clearly it had some redeeming qualities and you know enough that people would make it again and again and uh you know it obviously it, it filled a niche uh again we're talking about a time where there's no you know, painkillers, medicines. Uh, people didn't understand contaminated water sources. And so it really was seen as a healthful option. So if you had drunk one of those beers that was made in Peru, what would it have tasted like? Good question. I haven't had one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I... Uh, not really sure. It probably would taste fairly similar. Uh, you probably would have drank it out of straw. Uh, there wasn't sort of that same filtering process. Um, it it wasn't until much later that you really start getting hops involved. Hops uh, become about eighth, ninth century. We start seeing hops appear, uh, and that uh, really is the flavoring uh, as well as the preservative aspect of beer. And so, uh, you know, it would have definitely tasted different. And if you had gone into a tavern in, in colonial Philadelphia or, or colonial Pittsburgh and ordered a beer, what would it have tasted like? Uh, it probably would have been an ale or porter originally. Um, those were, again, we had a lot of British who brought that style of beer, um, which would have been darker and heavier and... Um, and they actually made what they called near beer, too, because it wasn't just adults that drank beer. Uh, women and children, all social status, drank beer. And so uh, it was probably mostly ale, uh, porters that they would have drunk. Um, it's not until you get sort of the influx of Germans uh, that really start sort of taking off. And, uh, you know, the mid-1800s, you start getting uh, lager yeast getting uh, brought over. And that made a much cooler uh you have to cool it to uh, and drink it at a cooler temperature and it's also clear and so it came at a time when North America obviously we have warmer summers uh, and so it was seen as more refreshing and you also have the glass act patch which means people actually started seeing their beer in glass rather than in sort of heavy tankards and so it was a very you know light refreshing nice-looking beverage that people enjoyed drinking, and it really took off. And that's part of the reason why Pennsylvania uh, becomes uh, the leading in leader of beer production. For about nearly 100 years, we almost doubled every other state uh, in the nation prior to Prohibition. Was colonial beer carbonated? Well, you probably would have had a little natural carbonation, uh, but probably not the same event, the same amount that you'd have today. They stored it in barrels. Yes. Yeah. So. Because it seems like you wouldn't. It would have gone flat if it was stored in a barrel. Yeah. So again, your natural carbonation would give you. I mean, just the natural fermentation, you'd get a little bit. But yeah, it probably would not have been what we again what we think of today as when we had the carbonation. And what did you find as early history of beer in Pennsylvania? Uh, in terms, 
What do you mean? What? When did they start oh, making when beer did they in Pennsylvania? Start? Uh, as soon as they came. <laughs> it was one of the very first buildings that most uh, people started. As soon as they landed, they started brewing a beer. Uh, making a brewery. Uh, they brought beer on the ships with them when they came over from Europe and uh, you know it's often seen and recorded as sort of the reasons why the Mayflower stopped where they did because they were running out of beer. Uh, a lot of the schools, the universities, as soon as they formed would build a brewery. Uh, again, the North America had plenty of fresh water but the cultural tradition in Europe had been that water was seen as unhealthy. And uh, so it was one of those things that they just saw as a natural sort of way to stay alive was to, to have beer. So you, you write in here, doctors often prescribe dark, rich porters for nursing mothers, the elderly, and those who were sick or frail. Commonly, people would start their day with a breakfast beer and continue drinking at work. Yes. How'd yeah. they get a, ever get any work done? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, they, they did make a variety of different kinds of beers, lower alcohol, and uh, what they called near bear too for children. Um, but yeah, it was it was seen as a prescribed method of. You know, you, my mother actually gave birth to my sister in England, and the doctor prescribed uh, Guinness for her there to start breastfeeding. So, and my sister turned out pretty smart. So <laughs> it must have worked. When so. did it start becoming a product that people would? package or you would buy somewhere other than at the alehouse? Yeah, uh, I believe cans become 19, or 1935, I believe, is when you first start seeing the first cans. And that really does transform society. So prior to that, you would have had sort of a male drinking by probably in a saloon. Um, and when you start getting cans, you can actually start exporting it, bringing it to parties to, you know, if you're going on a picnic, that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, you do start getting then bottled and mass produced beer sort of from the last sort of 1930s, 1980s kind of thing is sort of the major beer production. Well, in your book, you talk a lot about the craft beers and the small breweries. When did that all that whole movement started. Yeah, well certainly craft beer today is just, you know, sort of where a lot of people's interests are. Uh, and, but I do have to give a little credit to all that mass-produced beer. Uh, you know, I, I do, uh, you know, I'm thrilled that the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl and without people screaming dilly dilly, you know, <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't have that sort of excitement and the promotion and the advertisement around it. So, uh, you know, mass-produced produced beer has its place in our society. People still love Bud Light. I mean, there's there's no getting away from so that. So you're not one who's but, a snob and looks down on Well, Bud I said people Miller. still love it. So <laughs> when it actually comes to what I'm going to drink, uh, you know, again, it, everything has its place. I have, you know, and uh, if you want different flavors, different qualities, you know, a local beer that, uh, you know, hasn't been sitting in a can for a long time, um, you know, fresh beer, you need to go and get a craft beer. And, uh yeah, so that's where Pennsylvania, the laws changed. Jimmy Carter actually changed the laws in 1978. He made homebrewing legal. It uh, wasn't legal it until wasn't 1978. Legal. I know, which you think is kind of crazy, but if you think about distilling, right? I mean, distilleries, if you're going to home distill, it's moonshine, right? And it's illegal. Still so, illegal. Right, yeah. still illegal. So, uh, you know, up until fairly recently, people were, you know, 
whether they were secretly homebrewing or not, but finally you could actually start talking about it and sharing ideas. And so you get this early movement starting around the 80s and really kind of brewing. We get, a, uh, and then every state, that was at a national level, every state then uh, passed, had to pass individual laws too. Um, and so you start seeing our first craft brews in Pennsylvania, sort of the early 90s. Uh, one or two of them started up and then didn't quite make it. And then, uh, you know, our great brewers that we have today, like Tro's, Weyerbacher, um, uh, so yeah, uh, Lancaster, those uh, breweries started, you know, sort of 1994, 96 kind of era. And, uh, and so, yeah, so they, they're now celebrating about 20 years uh, of success and they're really growing. Where does Yingling fit into that? I mean, what, yeah. does that qualify as a craft beer or not? Uh, it is based upon the size of production, and um, that's really sort of what craft beer is based upon how many barrels are produced and outside ownership and, you know, a few criteria along those lines. But, yeah, we have two uh, breweries in Pennsylvania that withstood prohibition, and Yingling is one of them, and, you know, they proudly promote that on their label, saying the oldest uh, beer in America. Uh, Straw Beer is the other one. Uh, they're considered a legacy beer up in St. Mary's. And, uh, both are great. If you get a chance to go visit them, you get to really appreciate sort of the history. You go down in the tunnels uh, of uh, Yingling and you can see where they put up a brick wall during Prohibition and, uh, you know, and they've all had to adapt as well. They keep trying new things and, you know, they're adapting uh, from the past into the future as well with the craft beer industry. There's a lot written about craft beers and everyone gets excited about it and there's books and all, but the the mass-produced beers are still the, the, by far the largest marketing share. Why is it that uh, the people still flock to the Budweiser's and Miller's and Coors? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, their sales are declining slightly, uh, but yeah, they still definitely have the market. And it's still, it's a billion dollar, I mean, multi-billion dollar industry, and they've become global uh, conglomerates. I mean, it's it's amazing how successful those businesses have become. And if you think about it, I mean, they started from, you know, very poor immigrants moving to this country, uh, you know, really just sort of hard work and, and building their businesses. And uh, so, yeah, so those those businesses are, are quite a testament to, to what, you know, the beer industry can do. And, you know, I, I give them all the power. They're exploring, too. They sent, you know, grains up with, uh, you know, the spaceship with Elon Musk to, you know, if they ever land on Mars, they want to be, you know, brewing beer there. So, uh, you know, these large companies with a lot of money still have, you know, political clout and can certainly change, you know, and make inventions and do things just as they did in the past. Uh, but again, it's just the local businesses that really support sort of those local towns and the businesses. And generally, uh, local businesses support other local businesses. So more of that money stays within the state than the larger companies where, again, it goes to sort of outside global companies. Now, there was a time after Prohibition and before about the 1960s that every town had its own local brewery. And then there was consolidation. Why did that all happen? Yeah, well, they all started, they had to compete with some of these larger companies. Yeah, a place like Pittsburgh, for example, went from having, I think there was about 30 that survived Prohibition, and they got down to two by sort of the 1950s. And um, it really, they had to just compete, that mass market. Um, those companies that did survive Prohibition really 
became very uh, clever in their marketing schemes. Um, they actually started getting the entire market with refrigeration, transportation. They actually started buying refrigerated boxcars. And so they were able to offer things cheaper and, um, you know, again, just sort of undercut the market there. Now, we, what we also have with the mass breweries is that some of them are buying up some of the craft breweries. So if, if you want to craft beer, how can you tell whether you're not being fooled, fooled into buying into something it. that's a Budweiser product? Yeah, yeah, they certainly are buying, uh, you know, some of the the ones, especially that started up in the 80s, you know, as they started to get figured that, you know, Blue Moon, uh, Goose Island, yeah, they started buying up some of those first craft breweries. Uh, and they don't really claim to, ha you don't see a Budweiser sticker on it or anything. So yeah, they do try to sort of hide that. Um, yeah, I mean, really just sort of, I, that's what I love about the craft breweries is you actually go there. Most of the time you actually meet the brewer. You can see the equipment. You can smell the hops. And uh, you know that it's being made right there in a small batch uh, item. So. so if somebody wants to start up a brewery, what, what's involved in it? A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. These people work incredible hours. Uh, uh, there is definitely a hard science behind it. Um, we, I'm at Chippensburg University, and we're actually investigating possibly developing a fermentation science degree uh, because there is that need to help people who want to learn how to brew. Um, there are some online training courses. There are um, some training facilities outside the state or internationally. That's a lot of our brewers do actually travel to, uh, like UC Davis. There's Chicago. Uh, there's Germany, where people have to go to learn brewing. Um, then we have another bunch of brewers who are just home brewers and by trial and error and a lot of years of hard work they kind of make their way uh, and figure things out. So uh, the one nice thing about the brewing industry is they're very collaborative. Uh, brewers love to help each other. A lot of them make collaborative beers as sort of fun endeavors to be able to work together but also as a learning process. When you were doing the research for this book talk, you talked to a lot of Brewers, a lot of people yeah. who started businesses. What, did you figure out what is common thread among them that makes some of them successful? Um, probably just their dedication and hard work. A lot of these brewers are very well educated. They've gone to school. They have advanced degrees. Uh, and for one reason or another, they just decided, you know, whatever industry they had gone into, um, was not for them and they really they're quite passionate about what they do and when you talk to some of them uh, I've seen some of them actually almost tear up and get quite emotional talking about that first year prior to opening because they have no money <laughs> uh, they're working like nonstop, and most of their work is going into developing their buildings and so they are you know they're putting all when you go into a brewery you see all the bar stools and the wood on the walls and the pictures and you know everything that they've done they've kind of built themselves and uh, you can when you talk to somebody some of them are quite you know as more excited to talk about their building than their actual beer so uh, that's how I know that they really do love what they're doing and you know willing to give up everything to to kind of do that sort of work. And then how do they decide what their product is going to be so it's not just a, a cookie cutter Cut of other beers but it isn't so outlandish yeah well it is a craft and I think a lot of them like that creativity several of them will do sort of apprenticeships trogues is a great one I always think I would love to see a family trogues 
brewery kind of <laughs> dispersion of people who go and train at and work at Trogues for a couple of years and then go off and start their own brewery. And yeah, they're quite excited about going out and trying their own recipes. And so uh, Collusion, for example, down in York is a great example. Uh, he went and trained in Germany. He's very knowledgeable about beer. Uh, he makes a different batch almost every time. He just loves that creativity. I think uh, I was there when he made his 100th batch, and I think he said about 97 of them were all different. <laughs> so, so uh, But that's really sort of the need for the education, that quality. Again, when you're trying something, uh, these people do need to know what they're doing so that it comes out tasting good, too. You know, So it's not just an experiment. And that's, I think, where the science uh, behind it that you know, a lot of them do. A lot of them do have some sort of chemistry or biology type of background. How much money does it take? Uh, I think quite a lot. Quite a few go through crowdsourcing um, or try to get multiple partners. Um, even just the legal standpoint of getting up and running. Um, you know, Pennsylvania laws luckily keep improving, but we still have we still have some things kind of hanging over from prohibition. And, uh, you know, opening a brewery and getting the licensing and all that is not easy. And so, again, a lot of them do have to seek a lot of legal counsel. Um, and, yeah, so it does, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of money uh, for some of these brewers. So are, are there every now and then a state or federal inspector who shows up that everyone has to? Yes, we do have a, a PLC, the P Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, and they, yes, but especially before they open, they'll go in and improve, you know, check, and, yeah, they go through and check. How many of the breweries have, uh, have restaurants attached, or, and how many are just tasting rooms? Um, almost all of them have some food, um, and again, I'm not positive on all the Pennsylvania laws because they sometimes change, but yeah, they do need to require to have some food uh, offered if they are having a tasting room. Uh, so some of them will just have food trucks quite often to start with. Um, some of them will start off with just small items like pretzels. Um, some will allow you to bring other food in from you know, especially in neighborhoods where there's, you know, some great restaurants nearby. Uh, and then often a lot of the breweries, as they kind of evolve, will start uh, changing, like Molly Pitcher in Carlisle, for example. Uh, they had a small food source, and they just built a new brewery, and they have a full-size kitchen and have quite a, a great selection of food now, too, to go along with their beer. Seems like they have some fun coming up with the names for their beers yeah. and the names for the breweries. Right. Yeah, the beer names is really a great extension of the brewers, the owners, and the local legends. And that's what's really fun when you go in and you read a beer name and, you know, you kind of learn about that sort of local history. And, uh, again, as I said, I have a history degree, and sometimes this history can be a little dull. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, being able to tell those local stories and the local legends, uh, you know, is a way of passing on that information. And, again, we've become a a society where we often don't storytell as much as you know our ancestors did and uh, I think the breweries kind of do a nice job of keeping that tradition alive. Can you think of any examples of fun names? Fun, uh, yeah, what can I say on TV? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, some of them, a lot of them have uh, all sorts of names. Uh, 
I'm trying to think. Most of them, again, sort of reflect the character of the place. Um, Gear House, for example, in Chambersburg is all based upon the six owners love bicycling. And so the idea of a gear being a bicycle gear uh, is throughout a lot of their beer names. And so you have things like single speed and, you know, uh, different. They have one called Pump Track, and they actually donate the proceeds towards uh actually a riding track, bicycle riding track in Chambersburg. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the, the beer names are, are pretty fun and really reflect something about that, you know, the brewers and their desires to, again, sort of connect with the local people. Another thing they can have fun with is the labels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is uh, one of the things I think as the industry kind of evolves, a lot of the brewers are starting to kind of recognize branding as an important aspect, especially as they do try so many different beers all the time. They need something along the line that, that gives connectivity to their product. Um, and yeah, uh, Free Will, for example, has a tattoo artist make their, their beers, and they have a delightful, they, they can, and, and they have quite colorful uh, products out there. So yeah, and then uh, a lot of breweries will have, uh, I always said I'd have a book just on chalkboards. And because uh, yeah, if you go in, Partly it's because the menu is always changing, but they usually have a very colorful chalkboard with, you know, designs and all sorts of things. Now, if you have, okay, you, you've started your brewery and put your money together and you have a product and you have a tasting room, how do you, you then get it distributed? Uh, a lot of them actually just do not distribute, actually. A lot of our craft breweries at this stage are, um, you have to go there to, you know, they don't actually package. Uh, and so now they do have growlers that you can take out to go. Um, but yeah, most of them just sort of serve in their brew house. Uh, a couple of them will have a small bottling operation. Um, but yeah, to get to this stage where you're canning takes another large investment. So that's why you find a lot of the breweries, you know, the ones that are initially starting don't have those sort of money to, to actually, you know. So how do you get the local restaurants or local bars or, or uh, local beer distributors or the grocery store to, to carry, carry them? Beer? Yeah. Well, in terms of the restaurants, they would bring in kegs. And uh, yeah, so certainly, you know, you will get quite a few restaurants around the area carrying a local uh, craft beer or two, and those would be brought in on kegs, uh, you know, fairly regularly. Um, and yeah, when you get to actually the state distributing stores, you start to get to some of just our larger craft breweries, places like Trogues. Um, you know, a few, again, will have small bottling lines, so, you know, a couple places you can pick up a bottle or two, or, but yeah, it's, it's still a limited amount. So someone is watching this and thinking, man, that's for me. I want to start a brewery. What, what are the big mistakes people like that make? Uh, well, the big mistake is they start home brewing and all their friends say, oh, this tastes great because they're getting it for free. <laughs> and then they think, oh, I can make a brewery. And uh, that's probably the biggest thing is you have a lot of friends when you're giving out free beer. When it actually comes to having to purchase beer, um, you know, there, there's a lot involved in that. And again, that quality, the consistency, uh, you know, needs to, needs to be there. So if you want to make beer, how do you start? What's the, what are the ingredients? What's the process? Well, there's four, four main ingredients for beer. It's barley uh, and hops are the two uh, common ones. And again, my book, it's not really a surprise that I start, you know, the beginning part of the chapter has a, um, a 
local hop farm. We are starting to get some local hops in the state. Um, but if not, you can get dried pelletized hops as well from either Germany or from Washington or Oregon. And uh, we actually have started to get a few malters in the state as well. We had just in the last couple of years, uh, again, prior to pro after prohibition, we really didn't have any malters either. So uh, you can get some local malt and local uh, hops uh, for your beer. Other than that, it takes a lot of water, which again is probably local. And then you have yeast. And uh, those are really the four main ingredients in beer. Um, after that, if you start putting in pumpkin and different spices and things, that's you know sort of the flavoring after the fact. Can, can hops grow here and barley grow here as well as it grows anywhere else, or is there like a Napa Valley of hops? Yeah, well, we did. We used to have wild hops grow in Pennsylvania, and then right around the time of prohibition, you also got some uh, fungus and some environmental diseases kind of wipe out the natural hop population. And really for about 70 years, 70, 80 years, we didn't grow any hops in the state. Um, and it's really just starting to come back. Uh, you'll get a lot of home brewers growing, you know, a few stalks in their yard. Um, and, but yeah, we have, you know, probably about less than a dozen hop farmers in the state, and they've got maybe two, three acres at the most kind of hops out there. So we're really just starting to get um, a feel for what can grow again and what does well in this climate. And, you know, hopefully the, I know Pennsylvania Department of Ag is really trying to promote that diversification of agriculture and trying to help those farmers out. Is there any locally grown yeast? Yeah, uh, that's actually, <laughs> so So a lot of people do, you know, you can purchase a variety of yeast if you're a home brewer, or again, different um, places will have specific yeast that they use over and over again. Um, but one of the sort of the trends in the brewing industry right now are these uh, wild and sour beers, and that is where people are growing their own yeast, and yeast does kind of take on the natural, again, that terroir, so, you know, people will, um, at the end of that book, I have a PA preferred beer uh, where they use local hops, local malt, local water, and a home brewer actually grew the yeast in his windowsills for the beer. And so all four parts of the beer were completely made in Pennsylvania. Um, so yeah, some of our breweries, uh, Roy Pitts, for example, they uh, just celebrated 10 years in Chambersburg, but they now opened up a new location in Philadelphia, and that brewer is excellent at you know the the science behind the bacteria for wild and sour beers, and uh, we have a new one uh, opening up in Camp Hill that's supposed uh, in the next week that's supposed to be dedicated uh, often to a lot of sour beers too. So. Uh, what what does it look like when you're growing yeast? What is, does it grow in? What does it? I know like? I do it by accident in my fridge when I leave <laughs> bread too long. But yeah, no, I am definitely not the expert in growing yeast. Um, yeah, it's on purpose. <laughs> so yeah, but uh, they again they do you know they have a lab they grow. Um, a, lot, a couple of these breweries are starting that scientific process. They have microscopes and they are, you know, analyzing their yeast and growing them and really sort of taking the science of that uh, to the next level so that we can get the wild beers. I, I love them, but they all, you know, they're a little different. They're not for everybody. They definitely have a little of a sour pungent to them. So how many breweries did you visit to write this book? <laughs> Well, I, I used to pride myself that I had been to all of them in the state, um, but they are now, we had more open last year than the, na the last 
three years combined. Um, and even since Mar March, uh, we passed over 317 breweries, which was the number we had probably prior to prohibition, so to Harmonic. Um, we now have about 360 in the state. And so, yeah, they're opening up faster than I can, I can get to all of them. So, but uh, yeah, probably a good 250 to 300. <laughs> How often do they close? Very rarely. They rarely have one, you know, every now and then one will close and it's usually not for lack of, you know, a business sense. It's really, you know, maybe somebody wants to retire or, you know, just on circumstances with the actual <coughs> location. And uh, and then if they do close, chances are those brewers have gone off to, to open up another brewery somewhere else. Most of them are very successful, actually. I mean, they are growing slowly, but a lot of the locations have now, you know, have a second or third location, or they're selling at a marketplace. Um, Chatty Monks, for example, they have a great uh, location in Reading, in downtown Reading, and they opened up a second location. And then, yeah, I hear they're now at a farmer's market, you know, on certain days, too. And, and that's sort of characteristic of a lot of breweries around the state. They all are kind of, you know, expanding or adding a second location. Does that make them a little less crafty if you have one like Sly Fox where they have a half dozen locations? Yeah. No, I mean, it's certainly still you, like Sly Fox still has, well, that that brewer actually just just left and he's he's i i heard he's taking over the old yards building because yards now moved into a uh, new facility in philadelphia which is an incredible uh facility and really takes into uh sort of the the growth and sustainability and the new the industry has so um yeah so so you do have some of these brewers moving on to other places um but most of them again are, are maintaining that same quality uh again you have what um Again, a lot of them will still brew in the same location, but just having more access to the public. So you said you visited 250 to 300 breweries to write this book. Let's, let's take a road trip around the state <laughs> in your mind. I'm going to challenge you. And say you start, we're recording this in Camp Hill at our studio, and say you, you start here and you're going to take a trip all around the state. Uh, tell me where you stop. Yeah, it's, you know, if you start here in Camp Hill, you don't have to go very far to, to be probably hit 60 breweries within, you know, 60 miles. I mean, really, it, we just, if you go down that 81 quarter, to, uh, 283, 83, the Lancaster, you know, to Hershey, to, you know, that surrounding area, uh, you'd get quite a few breweries in that direction. Uh, certainly, if you go towards Philadelphia. Oh, name some names, though. Okay. Oh, all right. Some of your favorites. Uh, yeah. Oh, all favorites. If people want to take this road trip, trip. recommend yeah. places for them. Um, again, I, I have favorites that are based on a variety of different reasons. I mean, certainly, if you want the quality of beer, I mean, you can't miss Trogues. That's, Trogues is now the top 30 producing beer, uh, you know, in the, in the nation. Um, and their quality is up there, and they just make it an incredible tourist experience. Um, everything they do, they provide information. So if you want to learn about beer, that's a great place. Um, again, Weyerbacher is another place that's just, they do a great tour. Um, it's very informative. I actually took, uh, you know, my kids with me, and they, they were taking a history class on, on drinks, 
uh, around the world. And they were like, wow, we learned a lot from that. So, uh, you know, it's informative as well as very interesting. Um, and Weyerbacher is one of those early beers that really got into what we call big beer, the, the heavier alcohol or the higher alcohol content. Um, and they do all sorts of, uh, you know, unique we were talking about breakfast beers. They have something called the oatmeal breakfast stout, which uh, would probably put me out for the rest of the day, but it's pretty good. <laughs> okay, head west. Uh, my, my, one of my top favorites for several reasons as you head west is in Braddock. Um, it started by two young guys who actually started brewing while they were in college. Um, and uh, they do, they make incredible beer. Uh, they've won national awards uh, in blind taste tests against some of the top brewing, uh, breweries in the country. But the reason I really love it is, you know, Braddock has a pretty tough history. It's, you know, it was a town that really has survived a variety of different events over the last couple hundred years, or barely survived. <laughs> and uh, they have a thriving business. Uh, they send out an email every week. So unfortunately, I don't get there as often as I would like, but I read their emails. And they have to put up release schedules because they get such long lines with people wanting their beer. So people are willing to travel and wait in line for these beers in Braddock. And I mean, if that's not a, a successful sort of business plan for, again, sort of young guys to really help and revitalize this town, um, yeah. Are the beers really that good, or is it kind of image? Um, they are pretty good. Again, they have won a lot of awards nationally. Um, so, yeah, they do ha have good beer. They're, they're very uh, bright individuals, and they really sort of uh, have focused on sort of that quality and learning about different beers. Um, and... Uh, but certainly, I mean, their tap room is just a, a great experience. They have different, uh, it's, it's a very clean looking place, more of a sort of an urban chic, very uh, simplistic look compared to some of the other breweries, which are more older and sort of got that rustic feeling to them. So it is kind of a different look. Um, but yeah, that's definitely sort of one of my favorites as I head west. And then certainly if you get towards Pittsburgh, like that Lawrenceville area, uh, within, you know, a mile, you can can go th from, you know, ones that like uh, Church uh, Brew Works, uh, which is built in a historic uh, church, uh, is just a great site to see. Uh, but some of the newer ones, like 11th Hour, um, they have clocks. It's, ju it's just a fun uh, place to be able to walk down uh, within one or two miles. Again, you can hit probably five or six breweries that all have slightly different characteristics. Is Iron City gone now? Um, good question. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, they're still brewing. Um, they, I have been to that, uh, you know, they have a pretty large uh, plant, but the actual iron, the, the brewery, the large facility, um, yeah, they have that. It is, there is a posted on the thing saying that they do actually hope to kind of brew and, um, you know, what the, what the status of that is. I'm, not positive. We, we skipped past a couple of towns between here and Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's uh, well, Johnstown, Altoona, Bedford, Somerset. You mentioned Chambersburg. Yeah, earlier. so Bedford, yeah, for a while there was kind of a gap in that center part of the state, but they are starting to, to fill in. Um, Bedford Brewing Company now has one. Um, there's one called Coal, Coal Country. Um, Levity Brewing, I was at, uh, at IUP. Um, 
IUP actually has levity and um, another one about a mile apart from each other. Um, and again, yeah, those levity is again another one of my my favorites. Uh, they have. Uh, they renovated. They're another one that spent a good year renovating a vacant building and put a lot of hard work into it, and uh, you know, a lot host a lot of local events and musicians, and uh, really support that local community. When you make beer, uh, how long is it from the time you first start boiling the water till when you can serve it? So it usually about. 30 day, a couple weeks usually. So, but again, the ones that, uh, depending on the style of beer, um, whether, you know, it's top fermenting uh, or bottom fermenting, uh, and then also the flavors that they're trying to uh, put into it. And certainly, again, the new ones where they're barrel aging or, or uh, you know, sours, those ones they can actually store for two to three years um, and, you know, to really get the flavors that they, they want. What's the difference between top fermenting and bottom fermenting? Um, the type of yeast and when and how it actually uh, ferments. One's at the top, one's at the bottom. And yeah, so one takes you know more cooler temperatures and produces a lager beer uh, versus uh, you know ones that produce more like the, the ales and the stouts. Does it actually ferment at the top of the vat or versus the bottom <laughs> yeah. of the vat? So yeah, that's the name. So, well, let's see. continue our trip. Okay. Uh, city of Pittsburgh? Uh, uh, again, the Lawrenceville neighborhood is is pretty fun to, to get around. Um, and then certainly as you get, uh, you know, if you travel north from there, uh, you get like North Country Brewing. Uh, certainly Erie has some great breweries. Uh, they have a whole collection uh, up near Erie Brewing Company. Uh, certainly is one of the larger ones. Um, they too also have a great... Uh, tourist attraction similar to Trogues where you can walk through and and sort of visually see all the products being made and learn about it as you go through the beer. Meadville has one that's getting some notoriety. Um, uh, which one's in Meadville? I forget the name of it. Yeah. Well, okay, let's okay. move on. Uh, across the northern tier, where yes. it is sparsely populated, right? There's still there's still lots. Of, there, that whole Route Six is actually trying to design a uh, a tourism sort of trail for beer because there's there's enough of them uh, out along there. Um, there's a neat one in, in uh, called Knob Hill, which is attached sort of to a, a winery, but they have a, um, a tasting right along sort of the road and you can learn about how it's made and um, they have bit both beer and wine there um or some others uh it, there, it's now called Ironheart. that's one of the breweries where we said you know rarely does one close uh there was one called three guys in a beard um and that was in carbondale uh and that they sort of restructured, and so one of the owners is now uh, runs it as Ironheart um, in Carbondale. And again, that's another great example of, you know, a town that really kind of is in decline, and you know, from past industries. And you know, you you go into this town, and you have a little brewery, and you have all these people in there sitting around chatting, and uh, it's quite nice. Yes, one section of your book, how how microbrews have uh, helped with urban or, or small town 
revitalization. Yeah. Uh, Rusty Rails is one of the examples I think is great. That's sort of north central, uh, but it is in a small town. I think there's like 300 people, and yet you have this incredible uh, brewery. So it's really a destination brewery for people to go to. There's a rail trail along it, which used to be the railroad, hence the name Rusty Rails. And uh, it is... Um, it was an old factory, um, and so they. it's a beautiful building, and it's like two stories. You look down into the third story, which is a basement of where the brewing tanks are. Um, that has incredible food, and it's really uh, a nice patio. So, again, if you've been along the rail trail, you can relax afterwards and uh, enjoy the food and, and drink afterwards. You also write about the, the buildings and the, some of the unique buildings. You mentioned one is in a church. What are some other kind of quirky yeah. adaptations? The church, um, Battlefield Brewworks in Gettysburg, is in a Confederate field hospital, uh, which is, again, just a beautiful building. Um, Ceilings Grove, I think, is uh, really noteworthy. It's... Um, he was the first governor west of the Susquehanna River, um, and it's in... Um, Simon Snyder's mansion, and it's in the basement there. And uh, he was one of the first governors across the whole nation to speak out about slavery. He's also Pennsylvania's uh, only third uh, term governor. And so, you know, he's a really important person, and we have a brewery in his, in his mansion. Um, let's see, we have gone around the corner to uh, Scranton, Wilkesburg. Scranton has a great one um, called uh, Breakers. Uh, Brewing, and it is um, all designed, it's in an old schoolhouse, and it is, it takes in a lot of the history of the anthracite coals that was from the area, and so you see a lot of the pictures of coal miners, uh, and then they have a lot of their beer names reference, uh, like anthracite coal, or um, the coal fire and there's different uh you know f food items that all kind of reflect different parts of the coal industry lehigh valley lehigh valley uh i would have to say well there's a couple interesting ones there they they actually have a great they ha have a group of brewers that work together and try to sort of collaborate so it's hard to pick out one or two in that area um certainly bond place brewing uh, that is a small brewery right downtown Lehigh. Um, they are very creative and they sort of epitomize craft brew. If you want to go in and learn about beer, they are always there working. They are very gregarious and would love to talk to people. Um, and they always put little videos up on, on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. So it's easy to sort of, to learn from them, um, as well as see some of their quirky behaviors but uh they've won some awards at uh the great american beer festival too and really sort of uh, put some good stuff out uh also in that area you have fagley's which has two locations uh allentown and bethlehem uh they were one of the first to sort of adopt uh solar and wind power and sort of some of the sustainability efforts of the state um hidden river is another one that's in um the it's on the property originally owned by William Penn and uh, is just in a beautiful old house um, and a really neat location. How often do you come across a beer that's, that's new that you like? About five o'clock. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, quite often. I mean, I really, I do 
you know, my actual preferences change based upon the season and what I'm doing and sort of things. But, but quite, I mean, these people really do have, you know, have done some creative things. And uh, again, not everything is for me. I've, you know, had some flavors that I'm not necessarily thrilled with, but I still appreciate the quality and craftsmanship that they've put into that. So, uh, yeah, so if, even if it's a beer flavor, you know, and, and that's what's great about a lot of these breweries, you can try samplers. Um, and, you know, the brewers or the bartenders are usually really, they want to please their customers. And so if people says, I don't really like beer, or I don't like dark beer, you know, um, they like to hear that and they want to know and they were willing, you know, they'll give little samples out and try to make suggestions to actually, you know, pick something that people do like. Do you have favorite styles and, and styles that you don't like? Um, yeah, again, it sort of changes. Like in the wintertime after skiing or something, like a porter or a stout is just, it, that's great. I mean, that's a meal for me. <laughs> so in the summers, I like more of the refreshing. I, I love the sour beers that are out. Um, I find that, you know, they're cooler. I really enjoy those. Um, you know, the craft beer with the IPAs are just classic, um, you know, trying to get the more hoppier flavor. Uh, but they do tend to be a bit more bitter, so they're not everybody's preference or again then and also a lot of these beers pair well with different foods so you know depending on what you're doing what you're eating uh they they taste quite different when when you say a, a belgian style beer that means something or a german style beer that means something is, is there a pennsylvania style beer or a kind of a regional thing that you might not find other places um good question we i mean we we've we've had an ipa for a while and we are starting to get you know a north american ipa um and so yeah because there is enough of a difference from some of those global kind of companies um no i mean i i would put pennsylvania beers up against most of the nation we do outproduce california we took over as the largest producing state in the nation uh, and, you know, when you, people think of craft beer movement, they often think of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but Pennsylvania has actually sort of overtaken that. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of our brewers can, you know, nationally stand up to, to anything that Denver or, you know, Seattle can, can put out. So actually the town, that was another place to, to go. Uh, Phoenixville actually has more breweries uh, per, like, five-mile area then you know it ranks in the top 10 of per breweries <laughs> per square mile uh, in the country uh you know it's it's interesting they did go through a revitalization and the town put some money into you know putting in a rail trail and a historical center and things like that and you had a few like sly fox um iron hill uh put in, you know, sort of as major anchors. And then in the meantime, just these other breweries, uh, uh, Stable 12 is another brewery that, that is really fun to visit. It's at one end of the town, and once you start walking, uh, and those are just breweries. There's wineries and other uh, distilleries along that one-mile stretch of, of road there in Phoenixville. And, you know, if it's the sort of that suburban Philadelphia population, you know, you definitely have a higher number of people with higher incomes and, you know, typically 
uh, sort of that younger population that really uh, sort of thrives or, you know, lends itself to the craft brewing industry. We haven't gotten to Philadelphia yet. What's in, if you're in Center <laughs> City, Philadelphia, what do you think? Center City. Um, second story is kind of a cool. It's right down an old town, so you walk down the cobbled streets, and, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a cool old bar right down, down there. So, um Certainly yards, if you're in Philadelphia, is a must. Um, it's, again, they've, they've recently moved uh, to their new location, and it's, it's just packed. I mean, it's just it's an incredible facility and, uh, you know, really draws in a lot of people. Um, as I mentioned, the, the Roy Pitts now has their barrel house, which is the cider or the sour uh, location. And um, Love City is right there. Uh, and then I have, it's also, I think, expanding into, we're starting to get cideries as well. We have, uh, right in that same low neighborhood, uh, you have Current Cider, uh, which is starting up to have bars as well. So, so I think the whole industry as a whole, you know, really kind of is developing. Is there, is a shakeout inevitable where eventually we have fewer breweries and stronger ones or, or can the market absorb more, just keep yeah. on absorbing more People keep breweries. asking, they're like, don't we have enough? But really they, they keep expanding. Um, so yeah, eventually it'll be interesting when we kind of max out. But the idea of these brewers is that they're local. And so, you know, people like that local aspect. Um, they want to go, I mean, it does taste best better when it's fresh. So being able to, you know, get a fresh beer, uh, you know, at your local brewery, um, you know, I think is something that people like. Uh, again, we, we live in a society where we're all on our phones and our computers all day long. And I think people really do like that opportunity to socialize and, you know, talk to somebody. And so, yeah, I mean, at some point we can't have that many breweries, but this still seems to be increasing, so. If in England, every little town has its own pub that makes its own beer there. Are we heading toward that? I mean, have, have, have every have bars figured out just how easy it is to make beer and add on the, their local made? Yeah, well, that's a, yeah. I mean, certainly uh, there are certainly restaurants that have, you know, gone for brewing licenses. Um, and so that they yeah can add beer that they made there on site. Uh, and yeah, certainly if you do travel to Europe, you know, you do have that local aspect and, and people go and, and again, I think, I think we might be moving towards that. I mean, clearly we'll, we'll never be sort of the same density or location of, of Europe where you have, you know, sort of these small villages, uh, you know, we still like our cars and drive across the state and <laughs> on a turnpike. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly people do like that local aspect and be able to go to their local brewery. So uh, now that this book is finished, uh, the market keeps changing all the time. Uh, will you have to update it periodically <laughs> and come up with a second and third edition? Uh, yeah. So I, when I wrote the book, I was making sure that it wasn't an inventory of every brewery in the state. That's not the purpose of it. Because one, I just it is growing so fast that it would be updated before it was published. It's really more the themes that go along with it. Um, that yeah, I certainly could do. You know, again, we have enough more breweries now to add in more. Uh, I think some of the trends that come along will be some of the um, the local restaurants, the food, the farm-to-table kind of movement that's going along with it. Uh, Evergreen here in Camp Hill uh, has a restaurant attached called The Little Bird where he gets all of his locally sourced ingredients, and he actually put hops on in his food. He makes hop sausages. He puts hops on his, uh, or his pizza 
uh, and so yeah, so it's uh, you know I think that will it'll, you know the market will keep expanding that way. We've been speaking with Allison Feeney. She is the author of this book, For the Love of Beer, Pennsylvania's Breweries. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.